This is an ABC podcast. Those brooding tones tell you that it's time once more for the minefield. Welcome to the show. Uh, we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life uh, when we gather here. Well, Ed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host who helps me in this endeavour or sometimes hinders. I don't know. It's all about the exchange <laughs> and what we gain from it. Today's an interesting show, I think, Scott, because um, mm. this is one that you are very excited about and I don't really know what to expect. It's, sometimes it's the opposite, but today that's the scenario. Yeah. By the way, you used the perfect adjective to describe our new theme music for this year. Brooding, I think, is exactly right. There's some brooding music that I think is heavy-handed, that almost sort of sits on you like a too heavy blanket when you're already a bit too warm. I don't think this does that. This This is the kind of music that I think sends you maybe a little bit internally. Uh, that causes you hopefully to – it's basically what Leonard Cohen does. It <laughs> makes you retreat inwards to some extent. Everything is either Leonard Cohen or not Leonard Cohen in your yeah, universe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I but I like the way that you're right. slowly working yourself towards the topic because I, I see I what you're I doing am. there. Really? About, do you? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, our listeners have no idea because they don't know what the topic <laughs> is. Well, they might on the podcast, I guess, won't they? Yeah. But, um, yeah. It's well done. Okay, so uh, you said you have no idea what to expect. Let me just be perfectly frank. Mm. I have no idea what to expect from this either. Uh, There's a a hunch that I suppose I was hoping that we could follow. Some of it emerges from a shared experience that the two of us had that I don't know if we've ever discussed publicly. And another part of it is is two semi-convictions. I suppose, that have kind of been rumbling away in the back of my head for a while. And I'm hoping that in between those three things, something like a semi-coherent conversation is going to emerge. If it doesn't, the fault is entirely mine. If it does, <laughs> I was a genius and didn't realize it. Okay, it's all on you. Um, all right. So let, let's begin this way. Uh, what was it, Waleed? Four years ago, I think now, we had a shared experience of a movie that we both loved. I think I liked it a little bit more than you did, but you were sort of game enough, you were enthusiastic enough that we decided to pursue it together anyway. Mm-hmm. A movie that we loved, it was uh, Batman versus Superman. Oh, was it called The Beginnings of Justice? The, the Dawn of Justice? Dawn of Justice. Sure. The Dawn of Justice. The Dawn yep. of Justice. It was universally panned. I think it's probably fair to say it was universally panned. I couldn't believe how many people hated it, but also how many people preemptively hated it, and how many people went and hate-watched it because they heard it was so bad. Mm. And that just kind of, I don't know, that that bugged me a bit because I didn't think the movie was that bad. I've got a soft spot for it. You said we loved it. I think that's probably a bit strong. We had our criticisms. I I loved it. Did you? Yeah. I I loved the first two-thirds of it and then thought it turned, it fell over. Yeah, that's probably about right. Yeah. But I even loved the way that it fell over. Because it <laughs> fell over it fell over with gusto. You have to you have to love things that are really trying and even if they fall short, they kind of hit a wall so hard. Yeah. That the force of it is kind a of committed you know, failure. Is, yeah. It it was a committed failure. So anyway, we wrote I don't even know how that side of things came about, but we wrote uh defense. Yep. of the film for the monthly magazine. But I think the the thing that we wrote was only partly a defense of the film. The other part of what we wrote was a criticism of criticism. We wrote what I think was a fairly articulate critique of the all-too-preparedness that 
a kind of industry in and of popular culture has to find fault and then to register that fault too publicly, too preemptively, and with a little bit too much glee. Does that, is this kind of all sounding like a fairly yeah. accurate description of what it is? Okay. I think so. And it chimes with something that I've often wanted to do but never done, which is mm-hmm. I really want to start a website that is a review – it just has reviews of reviews – where I apply all of the sort of sometimes quite cheap and cynical techniques that occur in reviews and just apply them to those reviews. I think that would be really good fun. You know what's amazing? Every entertainer I've spoken to thinks it's an amazing idea. (laughs) Of course they do. Anyway, go on. Do you know what a nice kind of companion piece to that would be? Umberto Eco, the great Italian, well, semiotician, novelist, sometime critic, part philosopher – One of his favorite – a book that he did, the opening chapter is a chapter that I love dearly. It essentially is a series of fictitious rejection letters from a (laughs) hypothetical publishing house written to all of the great classics of Western literature from the Bible to David Copperfield explaining why the book is almost there but doesn't quite get there and what the author can do to improve it. I've always thought that maybe doing something like the opposite would be nice. Taking those books that seem to be universally regarded as abysmal failures and then demonstrating why the people who said that they were terrible got it entirely wrong. That's great. I look forward to your um, revisionist approach to Jonathan Franzen. I know that you'll be... Oh, no, 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 no. See, Jonathan... Anyway, sorry, you're not going to lure me down that particular path. Yes, sorry. Oh, Jonathan Franzen. Anyway, you're right. That was... was, I think, the well, it was definitely a strong theme in the point that we're making. And I think one of the subdominant themes to that piece, and it's not something that we've ever followed up on too much, is I suspect, I fear, because criticism has become so commodified, because negativity becomes something that almost doesn't have to be justified, what has to be justified is loving something too much, being too mm. enthusiastic about something is what has to be justified. And there almost seems to be among, I would say, poor critics, substandard critics, not really fine literary or film critics, but critics who are sort of mercenaries um, in the sort of pop cultural industry. There almost seems to be a kind of fear about being caught out loving something too much, mm. uh, being too enthusiastic and therefore maybe being credulous or being naive. And I think one of the things that this, the popularity, if you like, of criticism, one of the things that that's done, and this terrifies me, is that it's made us inarticulate in being able to express why we love what we love and maybe even a degree of mendacity or lack of truthfulness in being forthright, being public about just why it is that we do love what might be regarded as fairly base pop cultural themes. So this, this I, I, I guess, this kind of worrying about the ubiquity the popularity of critique. That's one thing. And I guess that then joins for me, Waleed, another thing that we've talked about quite frequently on this show, and that's that moral judgment has been replaced in much public discourse, uh, in much social media-driven discourse, and even a lot of political discourse. Moral judgment, I think, uh, what I would regard as being sort of moral judgment proper has been replaced by moralism. Uh, being able to say why such and such a thing is reprehensible, why this person is a moral monster, why this person should be cast out from polite human company. And I think those two things together, this kind of ubiquity, this popularity of saying why it is we hate the things we hate, and this 
reversion back to a form of moral jaundice or moralism or moral prejudice. I think these two things have gone together to make us aesthetically incredibly inattentive and inauthentic and also to make us morally unresponsive and unattentive. And in that very act of becoming inarticulate uh, culturally, aesthetically, and becoming inattentive morally, the thing that allows those forms of inattentiveness and inarticulacy to exist is our belief that we're actually being very morally serious or being aesthetically sophisticated mm-hmm. in the process. That's why I and wonder put, if, if moral – what did you call it? Inattentiveness? Anyway, hmm. being morally inattentive is quite the right description. It seems like a hyper-attentiveness. Now, I, I get you might be saying that that's not moral attentiveness, that's moralism. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what we mean by that distinction, but I yep. think – I'm going to do something deeply shocking here, Scott. I'm going to refer to a show that we did once before that I can vaguely even remember. And that was, did we not do one last year that was about whether or not politics should determine everything or or politics being at the forefront of everything so that everything was yeah. really, that everything was political in some kind of way and i, I wonder we actually if, did that 2 years ago would you believe 2 years ago and it no. was uh, yeah it absolutely was because it was around the same time as black panther came out ah i might yeah. be thinking of a different show because i don't remember the black panther part of it but anyway maybe okay. we've revisited this theme many times but but the point is i, th- I think what you're talking about there about the reluctance to love every, anything uh, wholeheartedly, I think, exists with a countervailing trend, which is a preparedness to love things too much hmm. because of a particular politics that they espouse or demonstrate or parade, right? Wow. Yep. So I think these two things exist in common. Uh, and then it can become difficult to say, sorry, I just don't actually like that film or whatever, because that now becomes politically and then morally loaded. Mm. And I'm not saying those discussions are always um, worthless. Like I think sometimes it is worth people interrogating why they have this kind of gut level reaction to something and maybe are rejecting something that is actually very good because of the politics of it or their own politics or whatever. I, I think it's worth us having those sort of things in mind, but I feel like that comes so much to the fore that for me, it's not the inability to enjoy anything. It's more mandated enjoyment and wow. and then mandated wow. rejection. Look, I have nothing – well, sorry. I have nothing to add to that, so I'm going to add to it. Um, I mean, that's <laughs> – look, no, look, I, I actually think you are, you, you are precisely right because there are then some films that I think you're right are politically overdetermined. They are self-consciously made, say, as films – of the moment or novels of the moment. And and this, can I just say, just going back to Jonathan Franzen for a second, this is one of the reasons that I really, really dislike him. I don't dislike him politically. I deeply detest him aesthetically because it seems to me that what he's trying to do is he's trying to write politically self-conscious or socially conscious films of the moment. He believes he's speaking with a semi-universal progressive voice and therefore can be imperious about it. And he seems to assume then that being politically of the moment or socially of the moment in the way that he is, that that then covers over a multitude of aesthetic sins. And 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 what's then supposed to greet his novels is that kind of – that nod, that gesture of, of political recognition. Yes, I see that we're on the same side. I think in the same way, Willie, there have been films uh, – the, the last one that I saw, which I'll, I'll confess, I just really, really found – 
I mean, aesthetically, as aesthetically unpleasurable as anything I've ever seen, was the film that was made about the university days of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the basis of sex. Um, uh, Contrast that to a documentary that was made about Ruth Bader Ginsburg called The Notorious RBG, which was magnificent. I mean, it was astonishingly good. Whereas what On the Basis of Sex then tried to do by being a film of the moment, it ended up being heavy-handed at exactly the moments, I think, where everyday life is actually quite sophisticated and quite, okay. so, so quite at the, subtle. At the risk of asking a question that perhaps indicates we should have had a meeting about this show, because you may not have seen it, <laughs> have you watched uh, Promising Young Woman? I have not yet, okay. but I'm... But I want to. Yeah, so I've just watched it because uh, everyone's right. I hadn't. I mean, look, I'm really bad on movies at the best of times. I don't know what's out. I've never. I haven't seen anything. Name a movie off the top of your head. Uh, oh, anything. Good heavens. <laughs> this shows you. I actually don't watch that many films. This wasn't meant to be a hard question, Scott. I yeah, this wasn't. I, I haven't watched a good movie. Just for Just any long time. movie that's ever existed. Planet of the Apes. I don't think I've seen it. Okay. This is all I was trying the, to illustrate. Anyway, the point is... <laughs> Philadelphia Philadelphia story. <laughs> yeah, no, I haven't seen it. So, the Lady Eve. Uh, no. Oh, so goodness. Okay. I haven't seen anything. And I don't, I'm not a film person, so the fact that I wasn't very much aware of this film doesn't really mean very much. I sort of became aware sure. of it because of the Golden Globe nominations and people raving about it. Yeah. So I went and saw it, and I would say I quite liked it. But I would also say that aesthetically I really... Th- there were things about... Like, I found it really heavy-handed. Hmm. Uh, I found it very much a... It was a really interesting premise. I loved the ending. Um, there were bits of it that were exceptionally well done, but there were other bits where I just felt this feels like a politics first moment, right? Where, right. where I'm being smashed over the head with the, the message and the politics of the film, and I, 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 that's really all there is here for me to latch onto. And you either like or don't like that, the politics of that, but aesthetically, you know, I, I'm not convinced about aspects of it. So I'm, I don't know whether I would say it's a great film or not, but I feel like the orthodox view at the moment is to say it's a great film. Now, the fact mm. that I am male makes that m- much more politically loaded aesthetic judgment. Yeah. Right. Um, even though I will say, and I have to concede, I have seen reviews that more or less arrive at the same conclusion as I do. And so maybe I'm overstating the kind of, you know, political determinacy of these things. But nonetheless, that's kind of how I feel the buzz or the hype around the film is. And I just wonder if that might be an example of the kind of thing we're talking about here where that, that feels like a film of the moment. Um, it may even turn out to be a film that does, you know, grow over time and end up being really good. And I'm not saying it's a bad film, like I said, I quite liked it. Um, mm. But it has, or at least I feel like I can see that sort of weakness in it, um, which is, I think, what you're talking about. And then the question Look, becomes, yeah. does that compromise the quality of the artwork? where it's being infused with something that's not aesthetic but is actually moralistic. At the same time, I don't want to walk away from the idea that we should have moral lenses through which we view the the entertainment that we take in. Like I feel like yes. if, if everything's purely aesthetic judgment, then I think something serious is missing and one of the very purposes of art just disappears. Yes. Um, so I don't know exactly where I land on that, but I think uh, these are interesting examples to play with. Look, Willie, this is the, this is fabulous, and and can I say one of the things that gives me great hope, or that makes me sort of anticipate seeing Dangerous Young Woman, or sorry, Promising Young Woman, is that Carrie Mulligan is. I mean, she is one of my favorite actors. She also exhibits a degree of subtlety 
Um, there is something about her. I, I, I haven't seen her overact or underact a character. I find that there is something about her that draws you into the complexity of the character, uh, very much unlike many, many, many other actors who are better known than she is. I would just say, though, that one of the things that I think your observations touch on is I simply think that what we classify as being, say, the political content of a film is usually simply too restrictive or too heavy-handed. So, I mean, you'll know that perhaps my favorite novel is George Eliot's Middlemarch. One of the things that is so great about George Eliot's Middlemarch is that it's taking place against the backdrop, quite explicitly against the backdrop, of the first attempt to pass the Reform Act in the 1830s, uh, which would uh, greatly increase the franchise in the UK. Uh, um, and yet the book itself, these things, these great momentous moral and political moments are rumbling away in the background. But the great moral and political content of the book are the daily relationships that take place between utterly ordinary and for precisely that reason, quite extraordinary humans. So the great moral content are moments of delicacy and understanding and forbearance and forgiveness and moral encounter that take place between highly recognizable figures, whereas the overtly political figures that might have, quote unquote, something to say to this political moment recede into the background. And I guess for, for me, one of the things that we understate, one of the things that we miss, and this is partly what I mean, I think, by kind of inattentiveness, is that we miss the political importance of those moments of real tenderness as getting out ahead of moral conviction or of political confrontation. Um, let me just confess, for instance, one of the most uh, morally um, serious and touching moments of anything that I've ever consumed takes place in the last season of the American uh, um, instantiation of the show The Office, where Jim Halpert and Pam Beasley, this classically romantic couple, their marriage is falling apart in kind of real time. They've lost the capacity to communicate with one another. They're bound together in a kind of mutual incomprehension and incommunicability. And that what finally overcomes that is nothing more than a moment of serendipity, a moment where they touch one another. And nothing needs to be said, nothing needs to be articulated. But that, for me, is a moment right up of the order of, say, what happens at the end of Ali Smith's novel, Winter, where two sisters who have been out of touch with one another, either side of a vast political divide, one of them is sick and dying, and the other one climbs into bed with her to try to create or, or provide a little bit of human warmth. And it's this moment where a reconciliation that is impossible politically and morally simply takes place. These are political moments. These are moments of high moral import. And as soon as you try to create this kind of great political or moral overlay, then you lose, I think, what is most profound, what is most human, what is most arresting. So I guess when we talk about the politics of films and the politics of novels, it's, it's those moments that I guess I'm most intent on us being able to hold on to and being able to articulate 
rather than just waiting for the, you know, the of the moment uh, uh, theme as it comes to the surface. Joe, what's interesting is we've ended up talking about politics. This wasn't meant to be about politics. This wasn't meant to be about politics. (laughs) I think it says something that this is where we've ended up and we may need a guest to rescue us from there. But I, I, yeah, there's something of the moment, if you will, um, that explains how we got here. Anyway, shall we move on? Yes. All right. You sound reluctant. Um, This is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now. Thank you very much for doing that. It's on new times on the radio. So at 2 p.m. Thursdays is when we're on RN, but you can also catch us at 10 a.m. Sundays. I think there's some midnight feast as well of us, isn't there, somewhere, Scott? Maybe on the Saturday. Somebody's in the early, early, early hours of Sunday morning, I believe. If you're listening to this at that moment, congratulations, (laughs) you. (laughs) I'm blown away. and Your level of dedication is extraordinary. So thank you. We very much appreciate it. You might be the only person listening at this time. Uh, Anyway, you can listen to the ABC Listen app at any time you like, which might give you an alternative to listening at midnight, or you can subscribe to The Minefield as a podcast on your platform of choice. All right. We have a guest, Scott. Yeah, you detected some hesitancy in my voice. There was none there. Okay. Um, honestly, Waleed, I I mean, I, I love our guests. I can hardly believe that they sort of stoop to come on a show like this. I reckon uh, when, but, once they come on, they can hardly believe they said yes. Yeah, that is probably true. But our guest today, this is an uncommon delight. Rita Felsky is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of English at the University of Virginia and the Niels Bohr Professor at the University of Southern Denmark. She is a literary critic and reader of all forms of art, of rare distinction. She is an author who has taught me immeasurably over the last 10 years. Uh, She's also a figure that I feel a great personal indebtedness to. Rita, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. I really do hope you're not regretting accepting the invitation. No, I, I don't feel I'm stooping at all. I feel I'm uh, I'm aspiring to a higher level. Um, yeah, thanks so much for having it. me on. You know, as you uh, as you know, I think I've I lived in Australia for a quite a long time, fourteen years actually. So it's really great to reconnect with the ABC. And you're an you're an alumnus of Monash University, are you not? That's right. Yeah, I did my uh, PhD at Monash, and then I uh, I worked at Murdoch University in Perth for seven years before I moved to the USA. All of the finest minds, I think, have PhDs from Monash, Scott, don't they? <laughs> really, Waleed? Really? Awesome. Who who else? Who else might you? I'm be... just trying to think of someone who's not in that category. That's a fine line. It's pretty hard to. Anyway, let's get on with it. Um, before before I sort of hand the reins over to you, Rita, I, I do just need to mention for those who have maybe who are not quite as familiar with your work as they ought to be, uh, two of Rita's very very important books. One is called The Limits of Critique. Her most recent is called Hooked, Art and Attachment. So Rita, one of the things I guess, and please forgive me if, I mean, we've had sort of a back and forth exchange of emails over the last few days trying to hammer out just how exactly we might approach this topic. I know that you're sort of maybe unwilling or a little bit reticent about delving into either the moral or political territory. But I think one of the things that really has long impressed me about your work is not just the sophistication, but also the naturalness of the way that you describe aesthetic experience, the degree to which you have almost given a kind of permission to be articulate about the way we really do encounter forms of art. Um, One of the things that is very prominent in your most recent work called Hooked 
is not just sort of aesthetic disagreement between people. So I might think that Bob Dylan is great and Waleed might think that he's overrated. Waleed might think that that uh, Queen is the best thing ever and I might think that they're unspeakably pretentious. But also the – This is just outrageous. It's not quite true. But also the change that takes place in a single person, the way that they might have hated something at one point and then come passionately – to love it. Why don't you just pick up at precisely that point? This is a, a major theme in your most recent work, and I think it's maybe something that might help us get to where we might want to get to in this discussion. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah. So this is a topic uh, that really interests me. And the way I come at it is through, um, you know, a word that's perhaps not in such common use, the idea of attunement. But we actually talk about this idea of attunement uh, quite frequently, actually, but we use other kinds of words. So what we often say is, you know, I got this movie uh, or I really, you know, this this novel really clicked with me. Right. So when we're using this language of of getting something, of clicking, of resonating with something, of being on the same wavelength, we're describing this experience that really interests me, right, of, of some, somehow feeling strongly touched by a work of art. And, and the interesting question, as you say, is, you know, how does it happen that sometimes, for example, you don't get a novel and then you do get it, you know, a couple of years later? Or how come that you hate a piece of music and then you come to love it? And so that's, you know, where I've been really inspired by Zadie Smith, who has great things to say on this question. So, you know, I can talk a bit more about Zadie Smith, if you'd like me to, and her views yes, of Joni Mitchell. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Yeah. So, you know, Zadie Smith has this wonderful essay uh, where she asks precisely this question, you know, how do you move from hating a work of art to loving it? And Furthermore, you know, to what extent can you control this experience, right? Is it something that happens to you? Is it something that you can orchestrate? And she gives us different examples. So she says, you know, I used to hate Dostoevsky in my 20s. You know, I didn't, couldn't get into him. He was boring. He was, I don't know, too long-winded, whatever he was. And she said she sat down and read a lot of Dostoevsky and maybe read criticism about Dostoevsky. And she, in a sense, kind of trained her taste, right? And now she says she really appreciates Dostoevsky. She's become attuned to him. She has got him. So I think in some cases we can attune ourselves, or if we're teachers, we can attune others, perhaps, to certain things that they didn't get before. But then there are other cases that seem much more puzzling, you know, and, and her wonderful example is Joni Mitchell. So she says, you know, when, when I was growing up, I hated Joni Mitchell. You know, there wasn't a natural audience for Joni Mitchell's music in my house. You know, I grew up listening to, I don't know, as you say, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen, Aretha Franklin. Uh, no interest in, in Joni Mitchell. A white woman's warbling, she says. It was, you know, shrill, discordant, little more than noise. She had no interest in Joni Mitchell. Her friends pushed Joni Mitchell on a college. No, no, she's not interested. And then suddenly in her mid-30s, she has this dramatic conversion. You know, she's on her way uh, to a wedding in Wales with her husband. He's a poet. He wants to stop at Tinton Abbey. Uh, she's wandering around in a slightly irritated mood because she, you know, she wants a sausage roll. She's hungry, looking out, she says, on green hills. And then she says, I started humming Joni Mitchell, started humming not yet conscious of a transformation. And so she has this rather dramatic conversion while she's at Tintern Abbey, almost instantaneously. And she says now, you know, in the past, as I say, she was either indifferent or actively disliked Joni Mitchell. Now she says she can't listen to Joni Mitchell without crying because she finds her to be so beautiful. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a fascinating example for me of, of the kind of puzzle of attunement, right? Why has one changed? And I think that's not an uncommon experience, actually. 
Can I just – can I pick you up there, Rita? Because it seems to me that there are two descriptions. There are two phenomenon that you're – that you're describing there that – and again, I don't want to shift things too dramatically from aesthetics into moral philosophy. But the way that you describe them strike me as being, if you like, morally pertinent. One is one is the kind of the moment of serendipity, if you like, almost a, a, a conversion experience where at one moment you didn't like something and then the next through a, a conspiracy or a, a conflation of different factors, your guard is down. Your critical faculty may well be suspended. It's, and it's remarkable to me that Zadie Smith actually uses later on in that same essay, Reflections on Attunement, she uses precisely that language. My, I had kind of suspended my critical faculty and it was right. my love for Jenny Mitchell was able to sneak in. And the other thing that yeah. you described is kind of sitting with something almost – Almost not so much forcing yourself to like it, but maybe attending to something over a longer period of time. Both of these strike me as a kind of suspension of aesthetic judgment, wanting to bring oneself near to something and to wait for that, maybe not even to wait for it, but to allow that spark to take place. That just strikes me as being both aesthetically and morally a very powerful description of the You know what you, that implies, though, Scott, or what I think anyway when I hear you say that, is that the problem is critics and listening or watching or reading as a critic, right? So mm. maybe I'm overstepping, maybe this is not what you mean to say, but it sounds like it to me, right? That That the more you are thinking about it and the more you are trying to place whatever's happening in some kind of context of an artistic tradition which requires a kind of intellectual work to assemble why this is good or not good as a piece of work, um, the more you are actually foreclosing the experience of serendipity or whatever it might be with, with the artwork. In which case, Rita, would you say that the world would just be a better place if critics didn't exist? <laughs> Yeah, well, you see, I, I want to have it both ways, right? So I don't want to pitch the kind of, you know, the intellectual work uh, in opposition to this suddenly totally mysterious serend serendipitous experience. I mean, I think they are both ways of becoming attuned. Um, you know, so there's this philosopher, Noel Alva, and he talks about how, in fact, you can often get to appreciate something that you didn't appreciate at first. You know, you don't appreciate it because you know nothing about it. You know nothing about, I don't know, a certain tradition of painting, say. You know nothing about a certain genre of music. But you sit down, you listen to the music, you look at the paintings, you read some books about it, you get a friend to explain it, you come back to it. And that can be a kind of deliberate yep. form of attention that does take into account intellectual context. I and mean, it's hard to understand, I don't know, classical music or a whole bunch of things if you know literally nothing about oh, it. Well, paintings so, are a classic thing to me. Like I remember the first time I, when I was uh, pretty young, just got out of uni maybe, and I went to Europe and I went to art galleries and I was like, oh, this all looks nice. And then when I went away and read it and I suddenly learned how to read them, most mm. of which I've forgotten, by the way, but then it, the whole thing comes to life. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think, in, you know, in, in many cases, you need you need those frames in order to make sense of things, but not always, you see. So, you know, I've got another interesting example, going back to painting, of this, uh, this writer in the United States, has no interest in art, no interest in art history. She's just rushing through an art gallery because she's meeting a, fr a friend for lunch. And suddenly she sees this painting and she's rushing off to lunch and she says she's hammered by this image. It's a, it's a kind of minor Matisse, right, supposedly. 
largely, according to the art historians. No one cares about it very much. She has no interest in art before. Uh, so she, in that sense, had no preparation or no connection. And yet she found herself blown away by this painting, almost like she had no agency. She's, she's, she's hammered by it. She stops in front of it and she becomes obsessed with it. And she writes a whole book about it. So that's a different kind of attunement. But, but I think both of those can happen. So I don't want to say like one is the good kind and one's the bad kind. I think mm. those are, are two different ways of being attuned. One is could be very sudden, as you say, like a conversion. One could be much more much slower, a kind of gradual acclimatization through through learning and talking and thinking. And I think they both happen. But in some ways, I think we're, we're more able to understand the one that's more intellectual, whereas the one that's more of a conversion often seems, um, you know, hard to explain. And certainly in the academic context, we've often been very suspicious of those kinds of conversions. So what does this mean then for any claims as to the inherent quality of a work? So... Wow, good question. What we're basically talking about is... How many hours have you got? <laughs> yeah, I suppose that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, but, but what's implicit in what we're saying, or even explicit, is that there's a subjective notion, there's a, there's a negotiation, if you like, or an interrelationship between the observer and the work. And if a work can be terrible one moment for you and then amazing the next, is it a good work or not? <laughs> the work hasn't changed, and are we then compelled to abandon any kind of judgment about any work as being inherently good or bad? Uh, yeah, well, I think that's absolutely a crucial question. You see, I, from my point of view, I would always argue that, of course, you know, works of art have certain objective features, if like, that you can point to. You can say in the context of the history of art, you know, this is a new kind of artistic technique. This is a new way of, I don't know, capturing stream of consciousness, wherever it might be. But any kind of value we put on a work in terms of saying this is important, it seems to me is always a humanly created judgment, right? That value is not in the work. There are certain qualities in the work, but that we find those valuable comes from us, not from the work. And that's why it can change over time. And if I may, I just would like to make, you know, one addition to, to the sort of perceptive things that you've said. Uh, you know, as you're saying, there's a kind of, um, you know, subjective interaction between oneself and the work. And that's actually, you know, a pretty familiar idea going back to people like Kant and so on. What interests me too, though, is that it's not in a sense, it's not just the two of you, right? It's not just the artwork and you, but there can be a whole range of other factors involved, you know, and those also interest me. That perhaps you had a, a, uh, a teacher in college who was especially passionate about Chaucer. And so suddenly you developed an interest in Chaucer. Or perhaps, you know, a friend raved you about some... Uh, production of Chekhov, and you suddenly develop an interest in Chekhov. So there are a bunch of things that come together to form these attachments, I think, going from your own subjective perception and it, how it changes over time, and then a whole range of other factors that perhaps may steer you to or away from particular artworks, I think. Uh, you're listening See, to the Minefield. Is... Oh, you're listening to the Minefield. We have a new time slot uh, on RN. It's actually not that much different, uh, but Thursdays 2 p.m. is when we go, and we go for a full hour. So mercifully or not, that is the change. Um, you can head to our program guide at abc.net.au forward slash RN if you like. You can also search for the Minefield if you want to get all the details there. But you can catch us anytime you like on the ABC Listen app or subscribe to our podcast wherever you do such things. Well, Ed Ali, my name Scott Stevens, my co-host. We're joined today by Rita Felsky, who is the William R. Keenan Jr. Professor of English at the University of Virginia. Sorry to interrupt you there, Scott. No, not at all. Thank you for interrupting. Uh, Rita, this, the sociality 
of aesthetic attentiveness or aesthetic experience is something that I find endlessly, endlessly fascinating, both for good and for ill. So for instance, I mean, the best kinds, I think, of friends or aesthetic companions are those that show you, if you like, the destination of a novel or of a painting or of a symphony or of a sonata that give you, this is what I've learned from it now go back to the beginning of the path and find your way yourself. Um, it's, it's not quite that they've done the hard work for you, but at least you, you have some kind of orientation. You know which direction you're going. Um, and then there's that other sort of social experience, which is I've seen something. I've read something. I've read Howard's End for the first time. And my God, how can you not? be moved by this novel and you want to share it with somebody. And there's something about the nature of your enjoyment that has to be shared and for someone else not to get it. There is a kind of, there, there is almost a kind of aesthetic effrontery that goes along with that. But then there's that other form of sociality of aesthetic experience, which you just mentioned in passing, but has always irritated me. You described the, the Matisse uh, that the writer walked past as being a minor Matisse, according to art experts or right. art critics. Uh. And, I mean, many of us have had that experience where you've listened to an album, you've seen a painting, you've read a novel, you've loved it, and then, pardon my French, but someone then comes along and pisses all over it. And don't you realize that was during the artist's decline? That was during the period where Wordsworth, I don't know, had become horribly bigoted and prejudiced and was putting out his worst work. And there's a kind of shame that goes along with that, but there's also that kind of objective frame that then sullies and corrupts the, the intimacy of the initial experience. Can you help me sort of work out the social interactions that are bound up, I think, almost extricably with aesthetic experience. <laughs> well, you know, there's there's an awful lot of them, so I, I'm not I'm not sure how much I can cover. But I think you're, you know, you're pointing to a, a bunch of uh, very interesting things here. You know, so on the one hand, as you say, there are the 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 kind of close relations with with friends and so on, and the way in which, on the one hand, um, you know, we, we may come to artworks through friends, and sometimes we come to friends through artworks, right? Mm. Um, and going back to the questions you raised earlier about politics, you know, one thing that interested me that I that I wrote a little bit about was, you know, uh, in fact, a quite political movie, Thelma and Louise, which was, I think, a beautiful movie aesthetically, but also a politically important movie. And through, you know, a shared enthusiasm about that film, uh, women made connection, not only women, but especially women made connection to other women through an attachment to that film. So I think, uh, you know, there are these interesting networks, uh, if you like, or work nets, where people and artworks connect and artworks connect people to other people. Uh, people connect other people to artworks, all these sorts of interesting uh, interesting connections. And yet they're also shaped, uh, you know, as I think you're also suggesting, by larger, you know, social hierarchies, cultural hierarchies. You mentioned this issue, issue of shame. And there can be that, you know, to a certain extent, as you say, when um, someone looks down, you know, on the fact that you like a minor Matisse as opposed to a major Matisse, perhaps. Um, but that's it's even more clearly the case, um, or at least it used to be. It's just things are changing a bit now. Uh, you know, when you used to like, when people used to like certain works of popular fiction, I think that's less true now. You are obviously all happily talking about popular culture. It's now become uh, less problematic than it used to be. But even nowadays, you know, I find, uh, especially in certain sections of the academy, if you 
express your enthusiasm for a certain kind of, I don't know, popular novel or something. There's there's a slight, uh, you know, sniffiness that becomes evident. No one is so tactless nowadays as to say that you have bad taste, but, <laughs> but it's often kind of, you know, indirectly communicated through a certain wrinkling of the nose or whatever it might be. Um, so I guess what that points to perhaps is the way in which these, these social networks um, can both be bene- beneficial, but also, uh, you know, constraining in terms of our relations to artworks. But, you know, the only thing I would insist on is that they're always there. You know, there is never like, there's never like a pure relationship, in my view, to the artwork that's not shaped by these other social factors. But what I would emphasize, that doesn't ruin, that doesn't mean the, the aesthetic experience is any less real, right? Or any less valuable, the fact that it's been socially shaped. It makes it more real. <laughs> there's something, though, that I reckon you might have just glossed over in the evolution of popular culture's status there, Rita, uh-huh. that I think is worth exploring. So you're right, people are more comfortable talking about popular culture seriously. Sometimes the whole trick is to talk about something that's very stupid in serious terms because it reveals some very capital I important thing about mm. our culture or and often these might be political analyses or whatever, sociopolitical. But at the same time, I think we need to identify, certainly if you're looking at something like television, that the range of the offering is so much greater. So prestige television is such a huge thing now. Like television has its oh, highbrow absolutely. expressions yeah, yeah. at the same yeah, yeah. time as you have the lowbrow stuff, you know, the married at first sight or whatever it might be. Like you have, you have this enormous spectrum. And then within that spectrum, there is still the sneering. So I had this conversation very briefly off air with Scott, and maybe one day we'll do this as a more considered show. But like witness the response to all the Golden Globe nominations for Emily in Paris, I think I meant to say. Um, oh, yes, yes. So, yes. <laughs> so what do you make of something like that? Like this is a show I've not heard anybody who is serious about entertainment, even people who watched it and liked it, seem to admit it's terrible. Uh, and yet right. it gets all these awards. And so this raises a question, or sorry, or nominations. So this raises a question about whether it should have. And then is it possible then that the sneering sort of attitude you're talking about is just towards popular culture has just been displaced so that it now occurs within popular culture? Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. You know, as you say, 30 years ago, you had a few, uh, you know, mainstream TV channels um, and, and that was pretty much it. And then you had high culture and now you have, you know, endless differentiated audiences and, you know, Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime and the people who might once have been writing great novels are now going off and making amazing TV shows. So I think you're right. In one sense, you know, the high-low distinction has become much more blurred. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, there's there's been a discussion in sociology of the idea that those categories don't work anymore because there's a claim we you know we're all now kind of omnivores, we're all now cultural omnivores. You know, one day we might listen to Mozart, the next day we might watch Mad Men or indeed listen to heavy metal music, right, that we could just move across all these categories. Surprisingly and, close and- to Mozart, by the way, Rita. The, <laughs> the relationship between metal and classical music is very, very strong. Beethoven, uh, Beethoven was, in fact, the first heavy metal Musician. Right, right. Oh, have you heard? Uh, sorry, I don't mean to go on about this, but have you heard heavy metal guitarists play Beethoven? As yes. it's extraordinary. It sounds exactly of a piece with what they do. It's really remarkable. Anyway, yeah. 
YouTube will probably sort you out there. Go on, Rita. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so, but you know, on the on the other hand, that's not. I mean, to kind of respond to the question, I think it's true that superficially, at least, it might look as if all these categories are blurred, and yet distinctions are still being made. And you know, I haven't seen Emmeline Parry order is, so I can't speak to that film or to that show specifically. Um, you know, certainly I'm against shaming people, but on the other hand, I don't want to say that we should not be able to say certain shows are bad, right? Um, I mean, that that seems utterly crazy to me, the idea that we should do away with value judgments. I mean, everyone makes mm. value judgments in everyday life. Fans make value judgments. They say this horror movie is better than that horror movie or, or this heavy metal band is better than that heavy metal band or whatever. So we, you know, we can't help but choose. And some things are made, you know, deliberately to be, you know, passing entertainment. We often watch things, especially, you know, on TV, and we don't think this was the greatest show ever, but it passed an evening. And there is a, there's an important difference between that and then another show, another movie, another novel that kind of might have changed our lives. So I think it's important to keep those distinctions. Sure, But, but if what it, we don't if, want to do is like shame people if they like things that we don't like. Right, but I wonder <laughs> how, how feasible that distinction is because if we accept that the quality of a work or at least how it's received by people it, it has very much to do with the people themselves. That is that the viewer, the listener, the reader is implicated in the work and whether it works, um, then you can't say, can you, or at least not very stridently, this is bad, but that the people who like it aren't similarly condemned along with it, are you? The fact that they responded to it says something about them. Like whether you want that to, want it to or not, it kind of has to. But you see, I don't see why that follows necessarily, because surely we might just be applying different, you know, aesthetic criteria. Right. You know, so for example, I'm not a fan of, I don't know, action movies with lots of, you know, car chases and, uh, you know, people getting into fights. So for the most part, those films are not are not aesthetically interesting to me. But someone else might find those kinds of movies utterly enthralling and might be able to, you know, in fact, draw, you know, up a, a list of which are the better action movies and which are the less good action movies. And that doesn't mean that that doesn't mean they're bad or they're stupid. It just means that their aesthetic criteria are different, I think. We all have tastes, right? We all have certain genres we like more than other genres. The fact that I don't like a certain genre of, 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 of music or of film doesn't then – it means it's bad for me, uh, right? It doesn't interest me. It doesn't draw me. I don't get it. I don't find it aesthetically interesting. But that doesn't mean that other audiences might not be able to find things of value in it. I, I mean, I don't see that that's, uh, you know, a, a contradictory view. I don't know if you want to chime in again on that one. But but I think even, even more to that point, and this actually, I think, emphasizes the inherent subjectivity of this, if I hated something – the first time I saw Groundhog Day, partly because I'm not a big Bill Murray fan. I've just never found his sort of type of comedy. Really? Interesting. I know. I know. The yeah. first time I saw Groundhog Day, it was mildly entertaining, but I wouldn't – I would actively avoid having to watch it again. Ironically. And then I read <laughs> – and then I read this gorgeous page-and-a-half email by the late philosopher Stanley Cavell on <laughs> Groundhog Day as an expression of the perfectionist moral life. And it got me thinking, and I, I'll confess, I lay awake for several hours one night thinking about it, and I went back and I watched it a few days later, and I saw things I didn't see before, and it was quite astonishing to me. And so having it watched by someone 
whose philosophical and aesthetic work I like very much. And knowing that they saw something that I didn't made me, I think, doubt myself. And that, that for me, I think, puts us back into the place where the limits, I suppose, of both aesthetic judgment but also of moral judgment. Rita, you might not like this way of framing things and please feel free to kind of bat it or knock it away. But I've been sort of wondering quite a lot lately the extent to which not all art but a good deal of it makes certain claims, exerts certain claims on our attention or we have certain obligations to attend to a particular novel or a particular film and that there's something about the rushing to high-handed judgment that is, that is not just aesthetically impoverishing but may well be morally objectionable just to the extent that, say, uh, condemning someone morally, enacting a form of moral judgment upon this person without having attended to the texture of that person's life. That's a precise phrase from George Eliot. Without attending to the texture of that person's life. There's something about rushing to moral judgment on, on, a, on a person that's also both personally impoverishing uh, but also kind of illicit. So do we have – I don't want to – I'm really reluctant to talk in terms of obligations. I'm not sure if obligations is the right term here. But should – art, should we expect that it kind of commands a degree of our attention and invites us to sit with it maybe a bit more than we in fact do? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't have any problem at all with that way of formulating things. You know, as, as you guys were, were mentioning earlier, I think, you know, there is this sort of general stance now of, uh, you know, being knowing, you know, as Richard Rorty would say, of being hyper self-reflexive and self-conscious and wary and vigilant and distrustful and feeling that we can't, uh, you know, lay ourselves open to to works of art that that seems too uh, submissive or naive or whatever it might be, uh, you know, that we, we offer and then approach works very, very warily. And no, I, I, I completely agree. I think the, the issue is, it's one of the things I'm thinking about in my writing and also my teaching, you know, is how we adopt a different kind of stance towards works of art, right? And from my point of view, the, the reason for doing that and that's where I'd see a difference between uh, texts and persons, you know. I mean, so I'm not I'm not totally persuaded by the analogy that if we behave badly to texts, it's like be behaving badly to persons, you know. If we don't attend to a person, you know, like as Cavell would like us to, um, obviously that's wounding to the person. If we don't attend to a text, we read a text badly, the text's not going to care, right? I mean, it's just sitting there, it will go on existing. So I think the moral issues aren't quite the same uh, from the text's point of view, if one can put it that way. But what no, I think but, is, but, is no, no. So, I mean, you're, you're right. Of, of, of course, you're right. The text doesn't have feelings. But uh, but if we if, if we pick up the idea of of attentiveness and attention, say not in the sense of the thing having feelings like the person would, but the lack of proper attentiveness is personally impoverishing. So I am yes, impoverishing yes, yes. myself and almost stunting my capacities as both an aesthetic but also as a moral agent. That would be, say, the way that Iris Murdoch. Would, would put it. I'm doing active harm to myself by not, say, yes. attending to the complexity of Dorothea Brooke, for instance, in Middlemarch. 
Right. Yeah. So that that makes perfect sense. So if I, I was basically talking about the, the very same issue uh, to my undergraduates yesterday, um, you know, in terms of talking about the limits of critique, you know, saying certainly we need critique in order to identify, you know, certain patterns of inequality in texts and so on. But I was asking, what are the limits of that approach if we only read that te text in those ways? And I'm, I was suggesting, yeah, the limits actually the damage we do to ourselves, because then we don't open ourselves up to being changed by work of art. We don't open ourselves up to learn anything new from a work of art. We don't open ourselves up to being, you know, transformed in some way, getting a different perspective, uh, getting a, you know, a kicking in the butt sometimes, right? That often you can get a form of self-recognition from, from, from works of art that can be quite critical, uh, that can challenge you in a whole bunch of ways. So yes, absolutely. <laughs> that sounds, I'm, I'm Scott, very, very to me, that sounds like a metaphor for much exchange, actually. Doesn't I mean, it ever. Yeah. Like you, yeah. you could say that bringing that sort of lens to works of art prevents evolution, I suppose, is a way of summarizing what Rita might have just said there. Um, we're, we're stunting evolution in a whole lot of ways, I would have thought, that have nothing to do with works of art necessarily. And this returns us to the way we started the show, really, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think this is one of the other things about Rita's work that have, uh, much like Stanley Cavell, who was not just a great consumer of high art from sort of opera, Chopin. I, I mean, I, I've never, ever, ever listened to Chopin's ballads, for instance, the same way after reading uh, Stanley Cavell's description of the way that his mother played Chopin's fourth ballad. There's something about that sort of opened up everything. Uh, and yet, uh, at the same time, for both Cavell but also for, for, for Rita's work, mm -hmm. the permission that that gives to view, to enjoy, and to open ourselves up aesthetically, experientially, morally for a kind of conversion or for a kind of evolution uh, with, um, with a far more sort of popular, say, low aesthetic work. I think there's something about that that's both more truthful about the way our lives in fact are and more truthful about the way that moral and aesthetic development in fact happens. Uh we're out of time. In case you're wondering, dear listener, Queen is glorious partly because it's pretentious. Scott misses that point. That is no, the no, correct that, view of things. You're right. And that's what you've taught me. That yeah. is precisely what you've taught me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rita, it's been such a joy. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay. Um, that I, was, that was, went very quickly. Yeah. Well, I hope it went quickly for the listener too. Um, we appreciate your time. I expect, should have expected nothing less given your, um, the source of your PhD. Rita Felsky is William R. Keenan Jr., Professor of English at the University of Virginia. I guess for this week's edition of the minefield. Scott, we're done for the week. We will see you all next week with any luck. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.